I counted 23 times. 23. I, I always wonder, like, like I remember singing that song. I, uh, I worked in camp ministry before I became a pastor. I was uh, originally trained to be in uh, Christian camping. And during that time, uh, we sang a lot of songs like this one. And I remember us just sitting there around the campfires, like, this is what we're going to do till midnight, is sing, there's no God like, Je- like Jehovah. It's, it's a lot of times, but it's a good praise. If you're going to say something well, I mean, you might as well say something like that if you're going to say it a whole bunch of times. Now, this week, we're going to be looking at Zephaniah as we're working our books all the way through the Old Testament. We're slowly working through the minor prophets. Now, we're on Zephaniah, and what we're going to call this one is Defining Love, because really, Zephaniah's sermon is about love at its core, even though at first it doesn't seem that way. Now, we'll get back to that, though, in just a couple of minutes. You see, last week, we looked at the book of Habakkuk. We saw how he had a lot of questions for God. In fact, we tackled the question, is it even appropriate to question God himself? We saw how God has thoughts, how God has ideas, he has plans, he uses methods that we could never conceive of. He thinks of things differently. In fact, he even told his prophet that when he told him of what he was going to do, that the prophet wouldn't believe. And of course, being God, God always tells the truth. So when the prophet came to hearing the words, the prophet's like, I don't believe you. you know, there's no way. God's like, see, I told you you wouldn't believe me. And so God continued on with his plan. But God always tells the truth, and that's a very good thing. So we can know things like that God always speaks the truth when he says things like our memory verse that we are currently working on. We can trust him at his word. So here, let's say this one together. It says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's found in Romans 10, 13. Good stuff. Everyone. You know, I love that word, everyone. I used to know a pastor that would say, Christ died once for all. And then he would say, and all means all. And that's all, all means. You may have heard somebody else say that. It was one of his favorite sayings. Everyone, no matter who you are, no matter where you find yourself, no matter how you've fallen, no matter how many poor choices have piled up, no matter the circumstances, no matter how worthless you feel, everyone means everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, just as our verse says. And this is the news that we get to tell a lost and dying nation, that everyone can finally find peace, that everyone can finally find acceptance, that Everyone matters, that they are loved and wanted. And who doesn't want to hear that kind of news, that you're loved and wanted, and that you can finally find peace? Now, in what will probably feel like a complete contrast to that very message, at least at first glance, of those promises, we're going to turn to the book of Zephaniah. So you'll want to open up your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. We'll get there in just a minute. But this book probably rates as one of the least read, one of the least popular books in the Bible. It's only three chapters long, and it's sandwiched between a bunch of other small, short books as well, so it gets a little bit lost in the mix. In all reality, a straight read-through of this book sounds like one of those old hellfire and damnation messages from preachers of old, if you just read right through it and you just take it at first glance. So this book doesn't have a lot of oohs and ahs going for it. This book is straightforward, and it's kind of rough at times, and we're going to work our way through it. But if we look deep at this book, we are going to soon realize that the underlying theme is love. And that's why we called our sermon, Zephaniah, Defining Love. Now, in this sermon, we're going to look at three different areas. We're going to look at, number one, 
how is love defined? We're going to look at that. We're going to see how God defines love. We're going to see how the truth can be hard. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to hear. Sometimes it's hard to give. And finally, we're going to look at how God's word ultimately is our guide. So those are the three areas that we are going to be looking at today. So first off, we have how is love defined? Now, we live in a world where love arguably is overused. We use love in a lot of ways, and I'm not sure it was originally intended to be. Maybe it's just a limitation of our wording and our our language structure. But it reminds me of this movie that I once saw. It was a, uh, about, uh, well, at this point in the movie, it's about a wealthy girl who's a little bit arrogant, uh, and she's talking to her friend about her possessions, and she says, you know, there's a difference between like and love because I like my Skechers, but I love my Prada backpack, to which her friend replies, but I love my Skechers, and she replies yet again, that's because you don't have a Prada backpack. Now, this is kind of funny to listen to, but really, this is kind of where our nation is at in our language. We use like and love interchangeably, and it becomes, in all reality, watered down a bit on what love actually means. If we're honest with ourselves, this is just the beginning of our problem. Not only do we often lessen the meaning of this word, we also tend to live, we we tend to limit love to an emotional response. Recently, I had mentioned the great awakenings that happened in American history in a previous sermon. One of the most recent great awakenings came about in the late 60s and the early 70s. Some of you may have lived through this one. It's called the Jesus Movement. And the Jesus Movement, during this time, the thought process, I heard some laughter over there. Some of you, you remember this movement. Uh, it, was, it was kind of thought to be countercultural. What was trying to happen is they were trying to start living like the early church. Every now and then again, you'll see these kind of movements crop up. Oh, let's go back to living like the early church. Equally distribute our possessions, uh, have communal living, and above all, we should love our neighbors as ourselves. The idea was passing on love. So you heard a lot of preaching about Jesus is love, and this is both factually and theologically true. However, the resulting sermons in the last couple of decades echoing that Jesus is love sentiment have slowly slowly moved to a very fluffy, very sunshiny idea of what love is and not actually continue to give the full picture of what love truly is. Now, the best way I can explain this difference between what I was saying is a sunshiny difference is a comparison of two different Bible verses to help you guys get on the same page as I am. The first is going to be John 3.16. It's a common known verse. In fact, I would probably argue it's one of the most commonly known verses in the Bible. So if you know it, you can say it with me. It says, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I've got a couple of King James people out there. I heard that word switch up. It happens. I actually was debating on which translation. I went with the NIV on purpose. But I, I know that wording. So, so you know it. And it's hard to even say it in a different translation. But we, we've heard this. And this is an excellent verse. It sums up God's eternal and undying love for us. That he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son to have a relationship And that's just it. We focus on the gift, and we forget to look at the sacrifice that made this all possible. You see, God loves us, and he loves us so deeply that he wants the best for us. And we have to acknowledge that where he finds us, the day that we come to him, 
isn't always the best place in our lives. In fact, generally, we're at one of our lowest points. But God desperately wants to grow us, and he wants us to become more like his son. At the end of the day, that is his, one of his purposes for our lives. And this is where the second verse comes in. It's actually found in Hebrews. You've probably heard this verse before, but we don't focus on this one nearly as much because it's a different side. This one's actually in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. It says, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Now, this actually has a different feel to it, but it's still talking about love. In fact, actually, one commentator said that this is the dark side of love. Now, love does what is best for its recipient, even when it's hard. Now, we're going to look at some stern passages today. And we have to ask our questions on how do we define love? Even better yet, how does God define love? Now, we're going to revisit this topic by the end, and I'm going to actually use God's word to define love. And I'm actually going to let his word define it by the end of the sermon. But with that said, let's jump into today's sermon text. So please turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 1, and we're just going to read verse 1 just to open it up. Zephaniah 1, 1. I'm reading from the New King James, and it says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gildiah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, a lot of ayahs, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Okay, so with those words, we're actually going to go into point two, that the truth can be hard. The truth can be hard. Now, first off, Zephaniah defines himself actually better than any other minor prophet. He actually gives a very solid list, and if you'll notice that one of the people in that list was King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was once king of Judah, just a couple of generations back, which means Zephaniah is part of the royal family. So we actually know a lot about his royal lineage. Zephaniah is actually one of the, is the last prophet before the destruction that comes and uh, takes away into Babylon. He's the last prophet before everything happens. Now, his writings uh, were around the king of Josiah, which means these are about 600 years before Jesus walks on the scene. So you can time and place this entire thing. Now, Zephaniah writes during a really hard time when it is to be a guy who's telling the truth to a nation who just doesn't want to hear it. It's very hard to be a person who stands for truth when you've got a whole nation around you that doesn't want to hear any of it. Almost all the news that he has to give is bad news, which doesn't make it any easier. In fact, most of the letter, like I said, is a proclamation of judgment. So chapter 1 talks about national judgment of both parts of the nation and what's coming in the destruction that's going to happen. Chapter 2 goes into actually further judgment in the area and eventually the judgment that the Lord will bring upon the world. So in chapter 1, verse 2, he starts out with these words. He says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. Now, with a verse like this, coming in at number two, it's going to start out heavy, and you know it's going to get more fun as we go along. So let's, uh, we're in for an interesting ride together. So let's look at verses four to six together. Zephaniah chapter one, verses four to six. It says this, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. 
the names of the idolatrous priests and the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven and on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but those also who swear by Milcom, those who have turned their back from following the Lord, and I have not and have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. So let's stop for just a minute. We're going to break this one down. So we're going to move forward here. God is finally, after countless warnings, we've looked at many books that have all said this same warning. If you don't turn, I'm going to send judgment. He's always sending this same warning. There's actually a process here that God is actually going to note. So let's break this one down and look at this. So first he says we're going to start off by weaning out the priests. Specifically, he starts off with the false priests. You'll notice that they worship the host of heaven on the housetops. Okay, so a bit of background here. Back in the day, the houses were mostly flat tops. You could actually get up on top of the house fairly easily. It meant that you could get up on them, but what is interesting is during this time, the Jewish people were supposed to worship where? The synagogues and the temple. There you go. They were not supposed to be worshiping at their homes. So the only approved place sanctioned for worship is at the temple. So they were supposed to be going and doing community worship, not at their homes. So not only in defiance had the people led astray in worship, the priests had led the people astray in what they were worshiping, but where they were worshiping as well. So the content and the place were both now wrong. And God is judging them for having corrupt spiritual leadership. Here, God is saying that the priesthood has become corrupt and now that every family is starting to go in the same direction because of this corrupt influence. He continues on by saying that these people swear oaths by the name of God, but also by Milcom. Milcom's kind of a weird one. If you have footnotes, you can probably hop down and look, and you can actually see that there is another name, and it's Molech. Molech is most famous for being the god of baby sacrifices. This is the one where they had the brazen statue. They would actually have a bronze statue. They would heat a fire around it. It would become red hot, and they would place living infants or toddlers on them to sacrifice them to this God for prosperity. To swear by a name is to swear by ultimate authority, or at least your ultimate authority. So if you swear by the name of God, you are swearing by your ultimate authority, which means if you are swearing by the name of Molech, or Milcom, as it says in my particular version of the Bible, you are swearing that this false God is your ultimate authority, that he is the one that you bow down to. So ultimately... This false religion has finally made its way into the family unit, and there are people that are no longer seeking God out. That's what it's boiling down to. This is where the people are at. This is what God is bringing in. He's saying, look, you're no longer following me. You're following something else. Now, the title of this point, I said, is the truth can be hard. It can be hard to hear, and at times it can be really hard to speak. If you ever tried to witness to a family member who just doesn't want to hear it, you know what I'm talking about. Now, these facts are historical, and they happened a long time ago, but they happened and were recorded so that we can learn from them. But what can we learn? When these people worship this false god, they sacrifice their own children to better their lives. Are we in our nation any better? Writing about abortion, there was a man recently that put it this way. Christian man said, instead of sacrificing our children to the god Molech in exchange for future prosperity, we sacrifice our children in exchange for better career paths, for financial security, and for convenience. It's not an easy thing to hear. 
On January 22, 2019, New York legislature passed a law allowing abortions all the way up until the moment of birth. And hundreds, if not thousands of people cheered in this passing of the law. If you go on YouTube, you can look up this and watch the video of it with Andrew Cuomo signing it. Very easy to find. Now, my question, are we any better than the nation we just read of in the Bible? Truth isn't always easy to hear. It's not always easy to tell. So Zephaniah continues his letter over the next several verses. He's going to start talking about the coming destruction that would be brought upon the land. So pick it up with me in verse 17. We're going to read 17 and 18, chapter 1, 17 and 18. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Starting to get an idea yet why these aren't the most popular writings in the Bible? We don't turn to these and say these ones in Sunday school very often. I started this message by telling you that the central theme of this document is love, but so far we haven't really found it. You have to look a little bit for this one, but it does pop out. And it gets hard to see that this central theme really is love. When you go to the next chapter, the first two verses of chapter 2 say this. He says, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. So it keeps sounding a little bit more and more like one of those old messages, the old Turner Burn messages. This is starting to not sound so great. Gather together, you undesirable nation. The nation's supposed to be the God's representatives here on earth. And he's telling them, essentially, turn or burn. God's chosen people, his representatives here on earth. But they became, and this is the point here, they became so much like the surrounding nations that they could no longer be told apart. They were supposed to be his representatives. Called out is the way he talks about them. They were supposed to be following him in a completely different way, but at this point, they look so much like the pagan nations around them that there's no distinction. They, they look exactly the same. But along with judgment, every single time, every single time, you will find that God also has an out. He will always offer an out. If God gives you judgment, he also offers an out. God doesn't change, and this is no exception. So our third point today is how God's word is our guide. How God's word is our guide. So look at the next verse with me. We're going to look at verse 3. It says, seek the Lord. Here we go. Here's the turning point. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you are hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So it's here we have our first glimpse of God's plan of redemption. God always offers a way for his people to avoid an oncoming disaster. Always offers it. You always got to look for it. The first thing that you're going to notice is it says, seek the Lord. But who does the Bible say is supposed to seek the Lord? Here it says the meek. But who are the meek? The meek are going to be defined as those who have humbled themselves. It's always going to be. Those who have chosen patience. Wait. Those who have humbled themselves and chosen patience. Where have I heard that before? Does that sound familiar to you? 
I hope so. If you were here last week, Habakkuk showed us how to follow God even when we didn't quite under... I see Ann going, oh yeah, I think I know where he's going with that one. Habakkuk showed us last week, um, even when you don't understand God, you can still follow him. And he showed us two things. Does anybody remember what his response was? If he took notes, he acknowledged who God is first, and then he chose humble patience and he waited on God. Sorry, I'm probably standing in your way. He acknowledged who God was first. Now, how did that happen to be the exact same advice? I'm going to go with what the old turtle once told the young panda. There are no coincidences. And with God who knows everything and that nothing is out of his control, you better believe that nothing has happened by accident. Nothing happens by accident with God. There are no coincidences. Our turning point has always been and always will be to humble ourselves first. We always need to humble ourselves first before our God. That is where our turning point is. So the next part of the verse says, those who upheld his justice. Who is he talking to? Those who have upheld his justice. He's talking to those who haven't just believed his word, but have also followed it in action, okay? They live their lives showing that they follow God's words. They don't just say that they believe it, they also do it. They follow it up. They proved God's word true in their lives by following his commands with what their actions did. So, the idea then is to seek righteousness and then seek humility. Seek righteousness and seek humility. If we've been following God's word in our actions, we are already seeking righteousness. This verse says to keep on doing what you've been doing, but don't forget to do it humbly. Don't get so proud that you're doing it. And others aren't. On the opposite side of the spectrum, which is completely opposed to these people, are the people that in all reality feel like they've chosen to um, not submit to God. It's almost like they've got an open defiance in their lives. So, so far we've actually heard a list right now. These people are called on their deeds. If you're a list person like me, and we just looked at a to-do list, okay, so this is what you're supposed to do. Seek righteousness and humility. Seek who God is first and then follow in after him. This is the not to-do list. It's going to happen in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. This is our do not do list. It's not quite the same as the naughty list that Santa's supposed to be listing up, but like the Grinch, you want to avoid these things with a 39 and a half foot pole. The verse reads in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted. To the oppressing city, she has not obeyed his voice, she has not received correction, she has not trusted in the Lord, and she has not drawn near to her God. Okay, so the verse calls out the rebellious and polluted, and it says four different things. Did you catch those? Those who don't obey God's voice, those who won't receive correction, those who refuse to trust the Lord, and those who refuse to draw near to God. It starts out with not being willing to listen to God's voice, and then it builds. It starts out with not listening to God's voice, and then it builds from there. Did you notice that we too can actually fall into this category? Every single person here that is alive, if you have sin in your body, which if you are alive today, you have sin in your body, you have the ability to follow along with these people. We all have the ability to reach the ultimate depravity in our lives as long as sin is existence. It starts, though, with neglecting to read or listen to God's word. It's where it always starts. It builds from there into an unwillingness to be corrected. We start assuming that we are correct most of the time, even when other people try to warn us that we don't quite have it correct. The final stages are twofold, that we trust ourselves and we don't trust God. To trust yourself is to not trust God. It's always twofold. 
This is what happened to the nation of Israel, this exact process. Now, it didn't happen over one day. This happened over a process of years. This is always a slow process because you don't realize it. This is just like uh, I like to talk about uh, orienteering and compass work. And when you're doing compass work and you're walking through the woods, if you're off by one degree, you will eventually make an entire circle. You have to be checking every single time that you are on the mark. Because if you are not, it'll slowly turn you around. And this is what happened. The slow fade. Talked about in a message last year. People don't just turn from God's word in one day. It starts, there's a process. First, you neglect God's word. You don't listen to what God has to say. Slowly, you won't hear other people's correction and instruction in your lives. And finally, you start trusting yourself. And at the same time, you stop trusting God. Now, I spoke earlier in this sermon about our definition of love. So I need us to actually look at a couple of verses because I'm not going to define it. I'm going to let God's word define it. Some of these are going to be familiar. So first, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You guys probably thought of this first. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to give you two chapters. There are more places, but these are two very popular places to look at love, the way the Bible defines love. So I'm going to let you hear how God defines love, especially in our culture today where we water down what love is. I think we need a clear and constant definition from the Lord himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's in the New Testament. I'll give everybody a second to get there. If you know where uh, it's about fifth or sixth book in, uh, Romans, then 1 Corinthians. A lot of times this one is used in marriages. But here we go, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. It says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8 actually kind of sums that one up and says, love never fails. That's just one of those. So that's the beginning of a definition. This is kind of a big idea. This is kind of painting the broad strokes. But let's get more specific. I like specifics. I, uh, I'm kind of dense at times. I, I like action stuff. I mean, there's good stuff here, but the more specific I can get, the more tangible it is for me. So let's hop over to 1 John. 1 John is right before the book Revelation. Just, just right up. We're bouncing right up to Revelation. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at 17 through 21. 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. I'll give you guys just a second. I know 1 John's easy to actually skim over. It's not a very long book. 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. Here we go. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because... As he is, so we are in this world, speaking of Jesus. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must also love his brother. 
Nearing the end of his short letter, we're going to go to one last verse in Zephaniah. Nearing the end of his short letter, Zephaniah starts explaining God's purpose through the results and the plans that God is going to leave within the people. So this is our final verse, and we're going to start wrapping this up. This is Zephaniah chapter 3, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. And we'll wrap this up. And that day, you should not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away you from your midst, those who rejoice in your pride. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. And I will leave in your midst a meek and a humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. You see, God wants to have a people who no longer rejoice in their own pride, but start rejoicing in who he is. They're humble, and they trust him. They trust his promises, and he promises that he will create a people that will no longer do unrighteous deeds, that they will no longer speak lies or be deceitful. And he says that they will be content in their place in life, which is pretty huge. They'll no longer be afraid. So, let's close this. Are those things that you want in your life, to no longer be afraid, to be content in your place in life? You know, I'm okay. I don't have X, Y, or Z, but God has placed me here, and that's okay by me. To finally be content, to no longer be afraid, do you finally want to be free of the lies and deceit that seem to follow you around everywhere you go? God has left his instruction. Acknowledge him first. Acknowledge who he is. Be patient. Trust him. Humble yourselves. He has a promise. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's our memory verse. He has a promise to us. So my challenge to you today trust God with the next step of your life. I don't exactly know where that is or what that is for you, but trust him. Step up to the life that he is calling you, no matter how scary the moment may seem. Trust him. Even when life doesn't make sense, God will come beside you and he will never leave you. So let's close in prayer. Father, I do ask that you continue to watch over each and every single one of us. Lord, I ask that you continue to give us guidance and direction. And I know Right now, the world is a bit of a confusing place. But Lord, I know I can trust you. I know I can follow you. And I know you won't leave me. So Father, I ask that you continue to watch over each person in this congregation and anyone who hears this message. Give them strength to follow you today in whatever you're calling them to do. Help them to stand for truth, even when it's uneasy. Help them to found themselves in who you are as we move forward in trust and love. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen.